Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Huge show today. We've got Drew DeVault coming up in the bottom of half of the hour. Drew DeVault is the lead developer for Sway, WL Roots, and Source Hut. He's going to join us and talk to us about those exciting projects. If you're not familiar with what Sway and WL Roots is, think of tiling desktop uh, like i3, but specifically for Wayland. Now, I had a chance to play with WL Roots and Sway a little bit back at scale, and so we decided to reach out to the lead developer and get him on the program to answer questions and introduce that to people who might not be familiar with it. Now, this has been a great week for open source. Lots of great stuff to get to. We're going to start with an article about OpenSSH 8.0. Now, 7.9 recently came out, and it came with a huge numbers of features and bug fixes. Damian Miller announced that OpenSSH is nearly ready to be released, and they are doing some insanely exciting stuff. Copying file names with SCP will be more secure because with OpenSSH 8.0, when you go to copy a file name, it's going to, copying the file name from a remote to a local directory will prompt SCP to check if that file is sent from the server to match your request. The SCP protocol, Damien claims, is very outdated, it's inflexible, and it's not easily fixable. And so his recommendation is that we move to more modern protocols like SFTP, rsync for file transfer. That was interesting to me because a lot of the system administrators that I work with from data on a day-to-day basis tend to use SCP. And it's not because they don't know how to use rsync. They very much do. The nice thing about rsync is by default, it's going to give you a readout of estimated time percentages and all of that. So it gives you a little bit more information. But I think SCP is one of the part of that old habits die hard. People are out there and have just made a decision that that's the tool that they're used to. And so that's the tool they're going to continue to use. And so it's interesting to hear from the people that actually work on this stuff that there's a better way. Now, in addition to that, some of the most exciting stuff comes again with security. The default RSA key size is going to be increased to 3072. Drop connections will still be logged even if you have a force command, if you have a force command set to internal SFTP restriction. And then the thing that I really want to dig into, and that is the experimental step into quantum computing resistant key exchange method. Now, I really like things that involve security, and I really like cryptography and encryption and those kinds of things. It's very fascinating to me. And it's why I spent a disproportionate amount of my time at the last Linux conference scale chatting with folks about a more secure way to manage servers. And also I spent 
a disproportionate amount of my time at the Yubico booth chatting with the folks with the Yubikey. Because they are essentially leading the front when it comes to hardware-based security and making sure that you stay safe online. But you know what? The truth is that the security that we enjoy from everything up to and including YubiKey, SSH, all of our secure websites, banking sites, all of that security is at risk with quantum computing. And it's becoming more and more real. And so it's very exciting to see that there are people that are actively working on this. The area of key distribution uh, is, is, is really where the problem with symmetric, actually, I guess let me back up for a second. There are two methods for encryption that have traditionally been used, asymmetric encryption and symmetric encryption. Symmetric encryption being the more popular or the more secure and the, the more preferred. The most secure and widely used methods to protect the confidentiality and integrity of data is based on symmetric encryption. And that's how the vast majority of the sites that you visit and the amount of security that you rely on functions. Now there is an quote unquote unbreakable encryption, also known as a one-time pad, where data is encrypted using a truly random key of the same length as the actual data that is being encrypted. But the problem is actually not with the encryption method itself. The problem is with how to securely exchange keys between parties. So to give you an idea, the, the, to break down encryption for maybe somebody who is not as familiar with it as others might be, the idea behind encryption is that you have two sets of keys. One set, and, and the truth is, there's a lot of people out there that will say, well, the, the private key, the public key, the public key, the private key. The truth is, what one set of keys encrypts, the other set of keys can decrypt. And so it can go both ways. It doesn't really matter which set of keys is the quote-unquote public key and which set of keys is the quote-unquote private key. From a purely technical standpoint, from an encryption standpoint, what one key does, the other key can undo. But you certainly want to keep one key private and you want to exchange the public key. So the idea behind a public key exchange is if I have a given document or maybe I have a given email, and I want to encrypt that email. I can encrypt that email using somebody else's public key. And then I can send that document to that person. And they can decrypt it using their private key. And, and in that way, we have exchanged information securely. Now, the problem is, how does that person that I want to exchange data with, how do they securely send me their public key? Let me give an example of how that could be problematic. Let's say I have a friend named Bob and Bob wants to send me his public key. And Joe, the attacker knows that Bob wants to send me his public key and knows that I'm going to put sensitive information and encrypt it with, with Bob's public key. So Joe sends me a malicious key, a false key and pretends to be Bob. Now me as the stooge, I take Joe's key and I encrypt the data and I send it over to Bob and Bob tries to decrypt it with his valid private key and calls me up and says, hey, man, this didn't work. I am not able to get to this data. Meanwhile, our attacker, Joe, is able to decrypt that data because he was able to intercept that process. And so there are two aspects to the security. One is the actual security of the keys themselves. How strong is the mathematical encryption 
that encrypts the key. The other part of that is the actual exchange of the key. And so to mitigate this, the most secure way, obviously, to exchange keys is to do it in person. Now, many of you have attended a key exchange. They occur very often at Linux fests or at Linux conferences. And essentially what that looks like is a bunch of nerds get together and we all go back into a room and we all sit down and we exchange keys. And now you know that you have my valid key because you've met me in person and I've given it to you. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that model is it presupposes that we're all in one place at one time. And you know what us nerds are very good at? Us nerds are very good at being in various places and working remotely. Some of us don't leave the basement. And so it's very difficult for us to attend a key signing party. So what we have, what we have, I guess, resorted to is a system in which we can exchange keys remotely. And that uses a public key cipher, like, for example, RSA. But the public key ciphers all rely on the mathematical strength and limiting the factors of the encryption scheme known to the attacker. And so as quantum computers become more and more close to reality, that challenges the very nature of the security that we have. Encryption is based on math, and it's actually really not even that complicated of math, at least the basic premise. Obviously, the actual implementation is fairly complex. And I've explained this before. I'm not sure if I've ever done it on Ask Noah, but the idea is if everybody knows what a prime number is, right? It's a number that can be only divided by itself in one. So an example of a prime number might be seven or 11 or 13. The interesting thing about prime numbers is you can multiply prime numbers against themselves and get what we call a a, a large prime number, or a, 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 a super prime. And what what this will do is it's it's two numbers, two prime numbers that are multiplied against each other. And the interesting thing about that number is the only way to reverse that process is essentially a guessing game. So let me give you an example. If I take seven and I multiply it times 13, I get 91. And a, uh, a excuse me, semi-prime, not super-prime, semi-prime number. If I multiply seven times 13, I get 91. If I give you the number 91, the only way for you to go back and determine the two, first two numbers that I used to arrive at 91 is for you to actually guess them. There is no mathematical formula that you can use. So now we can extrapolate a little bit. Let's say we're not using seven and 13. Let's say we're using 10,000, you know, 10,000 digits, a 10,000 digit super uh, a prime number and a, a multiplied against another 10,000 digit uh, prime number. That, uh, then you arrive at a very, very, very large, uh, almost difficult to calculate prime number. But that cannot be re reversed. Uh, chat, Nunix in the chat room says, if you multiply a prime by a prime, the result cannot be a prime. Right. But what I'm, of course not, because it can be divided. Of course not, because you can divide by those two numbers and one. But what I'm trying to tell you is that that number that you result with, the, the, the two numbers that you multiply, the only way to reverse that process 
is either by having those num those two numbers available or by trial and error. If you take there's no there's no mathematical formula to re, to uh, to back that out. The problem is we fundamentally rely on the fact that there are two limiting factors to breaking encryption and that is the amount of computing power and time. In 1977 we calculated that it would take over 40 quadrillion years to crack RSA 129. You want to take a guess at how long it actually took us to crack RSA 129? It took about six months. Now, it took 20 years to enhance the computing power to the point that we were able to crack RSA 129 in six months. But we got there. And that was because of the incredible power that increased over time with computers. Nobody really envisioned a time when we would when we would have an opportunity to connect multiple computers onto a network and be able to start calculating against encryption. Providing a providing a, uh, a provably secure encryption and and trying to build that infrastructure is very very difficult and that's what that's what OpenSSH 8.0 is aiming to do with quantum computing. They're going to pro they're going to provide essentially building blocks for remote parties to share cryptographic keys. And for the highest security requirements, qu the quantum computing key distribution enables the continuous generation of sharing through truly random one-time pad keys. Now the interesting thing about quantum is so the, the way it works is that they essentially use a fiber connection. And the interesting thing is just measuring a quantum computing key distribution disrupts a system and that disruption can be detected. And so we have, we, we have the ability then to know when something has been uh, essentially attacked. Nudix in the chat room says not just power, but several methods of, of attacking encryption algorithms themselves. But at the end of the day, no matter which method you're using the time, that it takes to crack encryption is essentially boils down to two factors, time and computing power. Now there's sure there's a number of different methods, but they all require time and computing power. 1855-450 Noah, that's 855-450-6624. Lucas, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Lucas? Uh, yes, hello. Can you hear me, Noah? I can. How are we doing? Uh, well, I'm great. And you I'm doing excellent. How can we help tonight? Okay, so um, I want to virtualize uh, several desktop machines, um, and I'd like to uh, know your advice. What technology do you suggest both on server and client side? Uh, I mean, like, uh, do clients have to use something like Remina or can connect to their virtual machines at boot time? How, how do you do this at uh, out of speed? What, uh, what, let's start with this. What operating system are the what operating system are you looking to virtualize? Are they are they currently using a bunch of Windows workstations or are they Linux workstations? Uh, well, currently they're Windows, but uh, I hope to switch them to Linux. Not quite sure if I can do this. Sure. Well, let's say it's how it's like four Windows machines, four uh, Linux uh, machines. Okay. So at the moment we're looking at virtualizing four Windows workstations, and then we're going to have the clients remote into those virtual workstations to continue to work. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. Okay, so the, the, the fastest, easiest, simplest, uh, most direct way to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish is to set up a physical host server running something like CentOS 
and use something mm -hmm. like libvert d the nice thing about libvert d is it's very very scalable i'm going to talk about this a little bit later in the program uh as it relates to overt and uh, and brandon johnson from red hat was kind enough to join us at our local linux user group this week and we had a conversation about this exact topic the nice thing about libvert is it it libvert d it scales very very well and so there's actually a tool that will convert a physical windows workstation into a qcow2 file and the qcow2 file is essentially what the virtual hard disk uh, is that's the image that is used as the virtual hard disk for libvirt d and so you can run this mm -hmm. tool and convert your phys physical workstation to a virtual hard disk you can move that virtual hard disk over to a machine that is running centos or red hat enterprise and you can then create virtual workstations based on the original disk image now, how do the clients connect back into that image? That's the, that's the second part to your question. And there's a couple different ways to yeah, do that. Exactly. Yeah, there's a couple different ways to do that. I really like Romania. I think it's one of the most feature-filled RDP clients out there. As much as I'm not a Windows fan, I have to admit that the RDP protocol is absolutely fantastic and works very, very well. There's very low latency. There's a very low latency. And it has a lot of the shortcomings of other remote desktop solutions uh, built into it. So for example, it offers USB redirection. So if somebody plugs in a flash drive, immediately that user is able to access that resource. If a user plugs in a USB device like a printer or a, or, you know, or, or some other, uh, we had a law firm that was using vocal recorders. They're able to do that over the USB redirection. It also supports audio redirection. So when, when, uh, when a client plays a, a website or a movie or listens to an audio clip, that audio is routed back to the Romania client. So there are a lot of things that the RDP protocol implements very well. Romania works with almost all of them. The only time I've ever run into some issues, do you have anybody using multiple displays? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, then you're set. <clears throat> then you're set. Then you're able to do that. So what I would do is I would install something like uh, Ubuntu probably, Ubuntu stock on the client machines. I would install CentOS on the server. I'd virtualize those four Windows workstations. I'd move that Q, those QCOW2 files over to the server, and I would boot those uh, in their virtual uh, virtual uh, workstation respective environments. Then I would go back to those Ubuntu workstations, and I would use Romania to connect back into the virtual workstations. Now, the advantage to doing that, Lucas, is you're going to create an environment where you're able to take snapshots of those virtual workstations, mm -hmm. and that is going to fundamentally change the way that you can administrate those machines because you have the ability now to try different software. You have the ability now to roll back after a virus infection or a malware infection. You have the ability now to let users play around a little bit more with their workstations because if anything bad happens, you have snapshots available to go back to. So the administration side is going to go down. Here's the other advantage, Lucas. When you go to your boss and say, hey, listen, it's time to upgrade that server, guess what? Everybody just got a more powerful computer because when we upgrade that virtual host now everybody gets more resources to share around So the investment into your computing infrastructure the investment into your IT infrastructure You're, you're dragging that investment out and you're making those dollars work more and so it's 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 going to reflect It's going to reflect very good on you as the guy who brought the solution to the table I think uh, and so for those reasons I always choose to virtualize where I can virtualize all things it's there's in this day and age i don't see a reason not to virtualize there really isn't because the 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 performance that you're going to get on libvirt d darn near bare metal performance it really is and the tools that are out there for administration make it so easy that uh it, there's just no reason not to do it
Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Noah. Yeah, you bet. Uh, let me know. Give me a call back if you would. And let me know how that goes after you get that rolled out. I'd be interested. I'd be interested to hear. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We're talking about quantum computing and the release of SSH 8.0 that will fundamentally uh, will start to step into this environment and try to help with the quantum computing key distribution. Again, it's, it's interesting that the way that this works, and I'm still learning about this, but the idea of sending quantum states of light between a transmitter and a receiver and the channel not necessarily needing to be secured, just having a communication link between the two parties and then monitoring that for any sort of eavesdropping and eavesdropping can be easily detected. And once that information is easily detected, then you get to choose, do I want to drop uh, the information that I had? Do I want to move on and say, we need to discard this information. We can't use this link because it's been compromised. Something bad has happened. And uh, of course, all of this is in the experimental stages. All of this is in the very early stages. Even the OpenSSH 8.0 implementation of it is very much experimental and in the early stages. But I'm excited to see that there are people that are working on this. And it wasn't three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was sitting in a room at a, at a conference talking with somebody about Linux and talking about quantum computing and learning a little bit more myself of how some of the technology works and what the challenges are going to be. Because you know what? As a owner of an IT company, you better believe that this kind of stuff affects us and it affects us greatly and we have to be prepared for it. And I would imagine that the vast majority of people that listen to the Ask Noah Show, the reason that you do is because you want to stay on the forefront of technology, because you want to find out about the threats and about the technology and what you can do about that ahead of time. 1-855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. James, California, you're on the Ask Noah Show. Good afternoon. Hey, Noah, how's it going, man? Pretty good. How are we doing? Um Good. I was just wondering if you had some recommendations for me. Uh, I've been consolidating a bunch of different old hard drives and uh, media that I had just like, I wanted to get them all consolidated. I picked up two eight terabyte SATA drives that I have in a Samba enclosure and um, they're an extension four. And so I've been taking all of these hard disks and basically migrating them over to these two eight gigabyte disks. Um, and I've just been using R-Sync. I couldn't figure out a better solid solution than that. And uh, I know about the, like, I think the F-Dupes tool for looking for duplicates. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if there was any recommendations for better ways to manage this, because it's a slow process. It's been going on for, like, yeah, man, this is just gradually moving all this data. It takes days, you know? Oh, um, absolutely. So any suggestions on that? Yeah, tons, actually. And so uh, I also have a lot of, I also have a lot of Clonezilla images, and I'm not sure how to dig into those. You can't really. Uh, you you can flash them back to a machine. I don't know of any way to explore a Clonezilla image. That is a feature I would uh, I would very much like to have uh, because I find myself in that boat pretty much weekly where there's something I need. I just need to pull. Oftentimes, for me, it's not necessarily exploring. I know what's on the images. For me, it's a function of there's one file and I know exactly where it is and it's on that machine and I end up having to flash it over to a to a dummy machine so I can crawl in there and extract a file off of it. Right. Um, okay, so let's let, let me see if I can dig into your issue a little bit. Um, so first things first, uh, let, let, let me start with this. 
Um, there is the the purpose, I assume, of consolidating onto these eight terabyte drives is you essentially want to archive all of your data, right? Right, across multiple drives. Sure. So the answer to your question, the easiest way to do what you're trying to do is to utilize uh, the, uh, I would say, utilize uh, LVM volumes. Uh, because what you can do, it, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not, I'm, I might wake that back a little bit. If you were going to build a box and you were going to put uh, a bunch of drives in it and store, like you're going to have multiple eight terabyte drives and you're going to store all of that stuff on a quote unquote archivable machine, then I would use something like LVM or I might even use ZFS. If I was going to do ZFS, I probably, I'd probably maybe even stray a little bit from Linux and I might even uh, step into the BSD okay. world. Uh, but ZFS and, um, or LVM are going to give you maximum flexibility with adding more drives. So, for example, when you get down the road five years and you say, okay, eight terabytes isn't enough, now I need 16, you have that option to go to 16 terabytes. You go a little bit further, you say, okay, I need to go to 32, not a problem, just add another drive, expand that LVM volume or expand that ZFS uh, array, and you're you're going to be back in business. Here's here's another take. Yeah. I'm Good. Uh, I was just going to say um, I'm comfortable with dead in and uh... – and I've heard people recommend Open Media Vault and yes. uh, ButterFS. No, don't, don't, no, 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 no. Don't, those people are, uh, let me, I, I don't want to be unclear. Those people are wrong. And you don't want to do ButterFS. Um, I, there's no nice way to say this, and I know I'm going to irritate half the listening audience if they don't completely shut me off after I say this, but ButterFS, is a, it's, a, it's a mess. And, uh, and it, there's all sorts of problems. And if anybody that has ButterFS, if you start to dig into to it and say, they say, I have it working and it works really well, and you start to dig into that a little bit, what you'll quickly determine is that they have all sorts of lacquer and little short shortcuts that they use to try to get away from the problems of ButterFS. If, uh, if, you want a, 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 if you want a very robust file system, ZFS, I would go X4 before, I would go, I would go X4 or uh, I, would, uh, I would use XFS before I use ButterFS. I really would. Um, let me okay. let me see if I can redirect this a little bit, though. I actually went through something very similar myself about a year and a half ago. And I basically I said, listen, I have a box and it was literally a box full of hard drives uh, from data from past file servers and past workstations. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a data uh, hoarder. Right. I just keep everything. I never delete anything. And I had all of this stuff inside of boxes. And I, I eventually I laid them all out downstairs in my lab. And there were something like 40 or 50 hard drives full of stuff that I really, really wanted. And I said, I've got to do something. And so I kind of went, I started down the path you started on. I'm just going to buy some really big hard drives and I'm just going to start copying all this stuff onto these big hard drives. And then I started to do some research because I started to think, you know, man, this is putting all my bag, eggs in one basket. What if one of these hard drives goes out? So really I should have two of them uh, that mirror each other. And then that way, if any one dies, I've got another one. So that was my, that was stage two of Noah's archival process. And uh, so I started to do some research into what drives had the longest longevity. And what I, what I found out was after doing some research, hard drives are not the place you want to go for long, for, uh, for extreme longevity. Um, actually optical media is, and uh, optical media, there actually is a specific kind of Blu-ray drive or Blu-ray disc that they make. Uh, that is specifically designed from verbatim to be an archival storage. Now, the claim is that this disc will last a thousand years. And I'm not, uh, no, no guarantees <laughs> from me. That's what verbatim claims. But the, 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 the idea that I could buy these discs, and they are a little bit more expensive than your traditional Blu-ray, but they're essentially 100 gig discs, and you can burn 
uh, 100 gigs of data on them and and put them into a jewel case and they will last for a very long time. And so that has that was the ultimate evolution of where I got to. Now, a couple of things that led me there, to be honest with you, James, I remember I don't need immediate access to that data. I just want to store it forever. And every once in a while, I might have to crawl in there and grab something. Uh, my situation would change drastically. If you told me that all of these, all of this data was something that you went to from time to time, or you looked at from time to time, I'd go back to putting it on some sort of a file server. And I have, a, I don't know, 23 some terabyte file ZFS array that's in my basement that I use for day-to-day -day storing stuff. So all of this is in excess of that stuff that I don't need anymore. So for example, all of the work I did in college, all of my papers and stuff, I still have them. I'll never touch them again, likely, but I like knowing that I have them because I'm a data hoarder. Um, so that's something for you to consider and I'll put a link to those thousand year uh, verbatim blu-ray drives or discs in the show notes in case you want to check them out Is that something you'd even consider or is it not an option for you? Yeah, actually you're reminding me when I was in college I actually did use a bunch of DVD-Rs and copied all my old data onto them and I sure. do still have the case laying around somewhere. I just realized Sure, so that makes sense Chat room, um, but I do have you know the eight I do have the two eight terabyte discs like for if I do want to access stuff locally with the little Samba share enclosure. So I do have a way to access them in addition to storing them, you know, somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, does that answer your question? Does that give you something to go off of at least? Um, yeah, for sure. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. 1-855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624. Also in the chat room, the chat room is recommending LVM with XFS. That is the preferred way to go. And he says, really LVM with XFS and Gluster FS. Uh, and, and of course we have somebody in the chat room that's saying they use ButterFS and it's fantastic. So take that. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know what? I'm just one guy and it's just my opinion. So, uh, you know, by all means, I'm not the smartest person in the room. You do you. If you think ButterFS is a way to go, uh, knock yourself out. I can tell you, I will never run a machine with ButterFS. It is, uh, it's halfway through the show. So we'll make a stop at the Linux Newswire newsroom with Eric, the IT guy. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric, the IT Guy. Hey Noah, happy to be with you again, and here are your Linux and open source headlines. Open source publication Linux Journal turns 25 years old this week. Started in April of 1994 around a quote, Unix of sorts called Linux. Few publishing atlas can boast the history and influence Linux Journal has had on the community. The first publisher, Bob Young, went on to found a small startup called Red Hat. Linux Journal was an early adopter of a geographically diverse staff with writers in Seattle, Washington, Montreal, and Israel. The open source journalists were also one of the early publications to migrate to completely digital in 2011. It hasn't been without difficulties that Linux Journal has survived all these years. The project nearly disappeared in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst, and again in 2017 when seeing paid subscribers dwindle. It was picked up by London Trust Media, the owners of Private Internet Access. Doc Sears, editor-in-chief, happily commented on their blog that Linux isn't done and neither are we. In fact, in today's edition, April 2nd, features kids and open source. Happy birthday to Linux Journal, and here's to another 25 amazing years. Recent news has seen Chromium and by proxy Google Chrome becoming the de facto leader on the web. This brings a lot of concerns to open source, the Mozilla Foundation, and privacy-focused users. Mozilla and its passionate supporters have been making efforts to move people away from Google Chrome and Microsoft Edge, which will soon essentially be Chromium under the hood. For those reluctant to leave Google Chrome, however, there is good news today, a stepping stone of sorts towards making it a smoother transition to Firefox, called Chrome Fox. Available on GitHub, Chrome Fox is a pack of customizations designed to make Mozilla's Firefox look and feel more like Chrome. 
To date, there is no customization or preferences pane for Chrome Fox. However, it does present users with the familiar rounded tabs, bookmarks bar, and overlay scroll bars users are accustomed to in Chrome. The only downside is the need to download the code from GitHub and place it in a folder within the Firefox systems directory. However, for those unenamored with the idea of leaving their familiar browser, it may be worth following the instructions as a stepping stone towards a more privacy-focused solution. OpenShot 2.4.4 was released last week. This new version brings even more features and improvements to a rapidly advancing tool. OpenShot aims to be an open-source, professional video editor with versions for Linux, Mac, and Windows. The current release introduces keyframe scaling, allowing a video to be switched between different frame rates. Other features include bug fixes and performance improvements to the timeline and preview panes, introduction of support for the RESVG rendering library, and improved docking and tracks features. The project also announced that the OpenShot forums, which have seen less and less activity over the past year, have been replaced by their official subreddit. If you are looking for a multi-platform, feature-rich application for video editing, then head to openshot.org for information on how to download the latest release. Finally this week, the Linux Foundation has announced another project has joined their ranks, datapractices.com. The site's main offering is their Data Practices courseware, which provides a free course on how to get started in today's rapidly advancing data ecosystem. Their goal is to improve the, quote, general level of data literacy for any who are interested, and are encouraging the community con to contribute and comment on their courseware through the Get their GitHub project. Their course covers topics on history of data practices, planning for data output, data ethics, and a recommended code of conduct. By being included with the Linux Foundation, they hope more projects will follow and sign their data manifesto and will receive further contributions to improve their content for future data practitioners. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric the IT Guy. Thank you, Eric. The website is DrewDevault.com. Drew DeVault is his name, and he's the lead developer at Sway, at WL Roots, and Source Hut, and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Good evening, Drew. Welcome into the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So for those that aren't familiar with WL Roots and Sway, I guess give us the 30-second elevator pitch. What is Sway? Well, Sway is a Wayland compositor whose user experience is backwards compatible with the i3 tiling window manager. And WL Roots is a library we built that handles a lot of the plumbing of talking to the Linux graphics and input subsystems so that Sway can focus on just doing window management. Okay, so would it be an accurate, or would it be accurate to say that WL Roots is, is is essentially the compositor and and Sway is the tiling window manager that sits on top? Is that an accurate comparison, or, or do I not understand that correctly? It's not entirely incorrect, but it implies a relationship closer to how X is designed. Uh, in actual truth, WL Roots is um, it does nothing on its own. So if you were to start the X server, it would start up and start showing things on your screen. But WL Roots has no such concept. It's just a bunch of tools, which can be utilized by Sway to provide a desktop experience. But on its own, it does nothing. Interesting. So Sway does have responsibilities for rendering your windows and doing all these other things. How does WL Roots compare to something like Mir, and how does it differ? I guess you kind of started to explain how that differs from X. Well, WL Roots and Mir actually have similar goals, and uh, the two projects work closely together on standardization and um, improving Wayland support throughout the community. Um, but WL Roots has a somewhat different approach. It tries to be uh, a generic library which can be applied in a lot of novel ways, um, but has no opinions of its own. 
whereas Mirror has a few opinions that it brings to the table on how the desktop experience should work. And the trade-off is that because Mirror makes those decisions for you, it's easier to write software against Mirror. Um, but because it makes those decisions for you, you can't change those decisions. So anything that Mirror does that you don't like, you can't change. But with WROOTS, that's not the case. You have to do all of the work, but you get to do all of the work. About a year ago, we talked to Jerry Boland, and he was kind enough to come onto the program and explain some of the, the benefits of Mirror and why the project decided to refocus uh, Mirror the way that they did. One of the reasons that he gave to us is kind of what you're touching on, the idea that Wayland doesn't it the, the spec for Wayland doesn't actually include a, a compositor that's kind of on you and so as a software developer you're left with the onus of having to develop that yourself or rely on a third party system which is kind of where Mir kind of stepped in does that same approach work here with WL Roots and Sway well, you're uh, getting at a good point here, which is that the core Wayland protocol is very conservative. Um, it doesn't even go so far as to define how to open an application window. And so the the fundamental building blocks of making a Linux desktop or just a free desktop based on Wayland uh, fall upon Wayland protocol extensions. And so there's some like XTG shell for opening application windows that are broadly supported and uh, not very contentious. And then there's others um, like WROOTS layer shell protocol, um, which are gaining adoption but are slow in places like GNOME. But uh, Mira actually uh, implements many of the WROOTS protocols, including the layer shell protocol, uh, which is useful for building desktops out of because it lets you do things like panels, wallpapers, lock screens, and so on. I love the fact that you are referencing collaboration with these other projects because it really em it, it emphasizes to me anyway that it's a project that has the best interest of the community in mind and does not suffer from not invented here syndrome. How does WL Roots, the project, collaborate with other projects like GNOME, KDE, and other Wayland DEs to further the prog progress for Wayland for everybody? Well, when we uh, got started, one of the biggest problems that we saw in the Wayland community, and this was after Sway had started, but before we started working on WL Roots, was that lack of cooperation. So we were getting to the point where different desktops would be using incompatible protocols and approaches to common things like taking screenshots. And so we promised the Sway community that in the course of building WR Roots, we were going to attempt to standardize better ways and portable ways of doing this. And so that involves talking to uh, developers from KDE and GNOME and Mirror and Enlightenment and all those other compositors uh, that involve some activism where I've been personally going to, I went to um, KDE invited me to their hackathon in uh, Berlin several months ago and I also met with many people at XDC, the X developer conference and pardon me, and others as well. Um, also went to um, FOSTEM this year and again met many of these people, spoke with them, uh, started working with uh, Collabora and the core Wayland developers and just trying to get everybody talking so that we could sort these problems out together. Have you found these other respective projects, and we won't call any out by name, but have you have you found these other respective projects and their leaders to be receptive and uh, and reciprocate that collaborate, collaborative effort and spirit? Uh, some projects are uh, more cooperative and helpful than others, for sure. Um, but the uh, progress is definitely positive. Uh, I have special thanks to give uh, to KDE in particular for being a big help in getting these things standardized and fostering that collaborative atmosphere. 
I'm happy to hear that because I'm a KDE user, so uh, Excellent. Very, very happy to hear that. Uh, have, uh, the Sway 1.0 was recently released, and I'm curious, what does that mean for the project? So when we decided to make WR Roots, uh, Sway at the time was the latest version was 0.15, and it was based on an older library called WLC, which is uh, similar to Mer in that it makes a lot of decisions for you. It's sort of like a compositor with plugins rather than a toolkit for building compositors with. Um, but it had a lot of these decisions that were not necessarily made with a lot of foresight because the Wayland community was kind of immature at that point. Not everybody knew what they were, they were doing and the, the, the correct path was not yet clear. And a lot of these decisions resulted from that got baked into WLC and it was problematic for us. And so we decided to build WL Roots to improve upon that, um, which was a huge undertaking and required rewriting almost all of the code from scratch, but it was very much worth it. But this led to a situation where it took a very long time to accomplish those goals. And at some point we started to realize that the, um, the version of Sway that users were out there and using today, 0.15, was really quite bad and wasn't really giving our users what they needed. And so the version that we were doing based on WROOTS was not yet feature complete, was 0.15, which meant that we had a hard time justifying shipping it. That being said, it was a much, much better user experience. So we didn't want to break things for people, but we knew that people were suffering on the old version. So 1.0 represents an alignment of the features of 0.15 and the WR Roots rewrite, and so we shipped it so that we could get users on better software sooner. What a man! What an accomplishment! Do do you and your team are you finding that you've reached a point now where you can kind of let off the accelerator, not to the point that you know progress is not continuing to be made? Of course it will be, but are you to a point where you can say, "Listen, we can at least sit back now and kind of enjoy the fruits of our labor, and as we move forward at a more comfortable pace, rather than this." what I would can only assume to have been a massive push to get to where you are to that 1.0. Actually, no, because there's never been crutch time for Sway. As the maintainer, my number one priority is and has always been to make sure that my contributors are feeling fulfilled and satisfied and that they're enjoying the work because they're volunteers. And if you don't enjoy your volunteer work, you're not going to keep volunteering. And so that's made it take a long time but it's been crucially important to getting consistent quality contributions from the community. And so we've never been in a crunch and we're still working at a similar pace. Interestingly enough, I think overall the longevity of your project and the overall mental health of the contributors of your project is what you're going to find is long term. I think that's going to pay back uh, tenfold because you're not going to have the attrition rate that you're going to see with some of these other projects because you're not burning people out right and left. I certainly hope so. What are some of the advantages for somebody who wants to customize the experience? Earlier, you told us that one of the advantages is that you can really make Sway and WL Roots into what you want it to be. How is that so? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, Sway and WL Roots are different projects with different groups of users. So Sway is something that an end user would use, and it offers a lot of customization options, almost identical to the options you would find in i3 for obvious reasons. And so... People who are used to customizing i3 or who already have a customized i3 setup can really easily bring it with them to Sway and have a much better experience based on Wayland. WR Roots, on the other hand, is um, completely unsuitable for end users. It's very much a tool for developers with which they can build new Wayland compositors that compete with Sway to provide novel experiences. And so that's already happening with the um, 
the Purism phone, the Librium 5, has uh, a WL Roots-based UI. Uh, there's new compositors like Wayfire coming out that try to bring some of that cool compass, wobbly Windows stuff to your desktop. And so based on WL Roots, we get a proliferation of novel compositors, whereas Sway targets the people who are already like A3 or new people who are considering that model. One of the things that I, uh, I, I ran into when I started to kind of play with Sway is finding a terminal emulator that, uh, that really fit my style. Now, obviously, that's a very personal question and something I'm just going to play with until I land where I land. But do you have a recommendation for a, a, a terminal emulator that you find to be very popular inside of Sway? I actually struggled with this personally for a long time. And, oh, good. Um, so it's not just me. <laughs> it's not just you. Um, for the longest time, I actually used Xterm on Sway, which is kind of embarrassing because... It's an X-Terminal emulator, and I used it through X-Wayland. Um, and I had been meaning to write my own terminal, terminal emulator for a long time, actually, to address my grievances. But in the past several months, I found that Alacrity, a new terminal emulator written in Rust, has really been um, becoming much, much, much more mature, and I'm using that now. But the default Sway configuration is a reflection of my personal preferences. So when you install Sway and you use the default config file, you'll get my recommendations on all the different software. And I still haven't switched it over to Alacrity. So I'm not necessarily going to encourage everyone to use Alacrity. But if you're not satisfied with your terminal emulator today and you use Sway, you might find it to be a good choice. Excellent advice. What is the easiest way to get key binding setups in Sway? I know that for me anyway, anytime I try a tiling desktop manager, that's one of the things that is is uh, I think is a real offput to people that have not used the tiling window manager before. Once you've used i3, once you've used xmonad, uh, you start to get an idea of kind of what something might be, and you can kind of guess or you you develop workarounds. Uh, and when starting out, obviously you're doing a lot of googling. Um, what do you recommend for people to to get set up? Is there is there a guide or is there a same set of defaults that you recommend or use? Uh, the default config file, uh, you should definitely give it a read. I encourage all new users to just read through that file because it's well commented and it shows you all the different things you can do out of the box. And it also gives you an idea of how you can customize things and add your own key bindings and so on. Uh, but if somebody's looking for a more hand-holding for a, a more guide-oriented approach, uh, because Sway is compatible with i3, I generally just recommend reading the i3 documentation, which has a detailed user guide and tutorials. What is next for Sway and WL Roots? Obviously, you know, even at the, the pace that you're talking about and not putting any undue pressure on the developers, obviously you guys have goals, aspirations, a roadmap for where you want to be. What does that look like? We definitely have um, some goals. Uh, what it comes down to is, again, trying to value the time and motivations of my contributors. I don't prescribe a roadmap upon the project. I encourage everybody who works on the project to develop and work on the things that are interesting and important to them. That being said, I do have a pulse on what some people are working on, and I know what I'm certainly working on. Uh, things we want to improve in the near future include bringing better drawing tablet support to Sway, uh, improving touchscreen support, like touchscreen bindings. I mentioned the Purism folks earlier, and they actually were kind enough to give me one of their dev boards to wow. test Sway on. Um, which I have right here on my desk, and I actually do already have Sway running on it. So I've been improving Sway on touchscreens. Um, other people are working on things like overhauling the WL Roots rendering subsystem so we can start to think about Vulkan support and even more fateful and performance implementations of the Linux graphics subsystem. Um, we have people working on extending more protocols uh, with their standardization effort to try and get more and more desktop components to be feasible and things like that. I want to shift a little bit and I want to talk about SourceHut. Now, SourceHut, I guess let's just 
put it out there. What is the 30 second elevator pitch for Source Hut? So Source Hut's a completely different project I'm working on. There's 100% unrelated to Sway and W Roots, but um, it's kind of an alternative to other source hosting places like GitHub and GitLab and Gogs and so on. Um, that unlike GitHub, which kind of builds its own offering and uh, incorporates its own workflows and user experience, SourceSet embraces some of the, the tools that come with Git. And so one of the ways it does that is with uh, mailing lists rather than pull requests and uh, all sorts of other tools like Git hosting, Mercurial hosting, bug tracking, um, as a really nice continuous integration server with support for a whole bunch of different Linux distros. Uh, but it's just a different forge that's more hacker-oriented than enthusiast-oriented. What are some of the advantages of, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, of SourceHut, say, to GitLab, GitHub? Or if you, if, you, if you have an example, I'd be interested in hearing how it compares to something like Fabricator, a, an alternative to GitLab and GitHub that we don't really talk much or hear much about. Yeah, Fabricator is interesting. Uh, definitely a cool project. Um, but... Again, Fabricator is one of those forges that is taking a its own model and kind of building it on top of Git. And so the real difference the source hut brings is that it's not building on top of Git, it's building with Git. And so all of the tools and workflows and things Git's designed to do is what source hut embraces and extends upon. And the alternate way, like the GitHub pull requests or the Fabricator model, is almost designed to keep you on those platforms and keep you interacting with the communities on those platforms, whereas the SourceHut model uh, is designed to go out and embrace the rest of the community. So you can use SourceHut to contribute to Linux because it's compatible with the Linux mailing lists, and you can also interact with other people running SourceHut software, and it actually has integration with GitHub as well. So it's designed to, um, to go out there and improve the ecosystem rather than to capture the ecosystem. In that same spirit, do you ever see SourceHut growing to the point that it becomes a major competitor for GitLab or GitHub or Fabricator, or maybe it's maybe maybe you believe it's already there. Um, do we ever see a time of that happening, or is it more of a project um, to align with specific goals rather than to be the biggest player in the game? Yeah, I don't need to be the biggest player in the game to consider SourceHut successful. Uh, it's not necessarily a stated goal to compete with those other platforms. Really, I'm just trying to make a platform which best expresses the way that I think that open source projects should be one. And I hope that that resonates with the community and people who agree with that workflow will find SourceSet a suitable platform for their needs. I tell you what, having talked to you for all of 15 minutes, I really think that I can identify uh, and, and really get behind your method and, and your approach to software development. And uh, you are... I mean, without just blowing smoke in your face, I think you are truly an example of the leaders, the kind of leaders that we want in the open source community. So I want to publicly thank you for doing that. Uh, Sway and WL Ritz, I'm going to guess, are hosted on SourceHut? Actually, no. They're both hosted on GitHub uh, because they predate SourceHut. And I uh, don't want to disrupt those communities by bringing them over to SourceHut before I feel that all of the existing contributors are comfortable using the different workflow. That makes a lot of sense, and it's very considerate of you. Do you see a time when that's going to happen in the future, or is it kind of up in the air? It is happening gradually. So I mentioned the CI service that SourceSet has. Um, it provides a 
much, much more compelling alternative from software like Travis CI and other solutions. And so it also doesn't really require a lot of friction with existing contributors. So that's one place where I've already moved Sway and WROOTS onto SourceHead. So it is running the CI for both projects. Uh, and there's starting to be talk about how we can incorporate mailing lists into the project. And we're enumerating all the things that we need from SourceHead before we can really move everything over. Um, so gradually, we're going to get there eventually, I hope. Drew DeVault, he is the lead developer at Sway, WL Roots, and Source Hut, and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. We really appreciate everything you're doing, the example you're setting. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. This is not a drill. Repeat. This is not a drill. This is a worldwide lug alert. Please proceed calmly to the closest lug meeting in your area. It is the first episode of the month and time to get involved in your local Linux user group. Here are the meetings in the month of April coming up around the world. April 1st, Zurich, Switzerland. Annapolis, Maryland. April 2nd, Montreal, Quebec in Canada and Chicago, Illinois. April 3rd, London, England, the UK. April 4th, Chicago, Illinois. Huntsville, Alabama. Clemsford, Massachusetts, Akron, Ohio, St. Louis, Missouri, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. On April 6th, Delhi, India. April 9th, Perth, Australia. April 10th, we got St. Louis, Missouri. April 11th, Phoenix, Arizona, Austin, Texas, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Landshut, Germany. April 12th, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and Moscow, Russia. April 13th, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and McLean, Virginia, Dublin, Ireland. On April 14th, we got Chicago, Illinois. April 15th, Seattle, Washington. April 16th, Bridgeport, West Virginia, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. April 18th, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Huntsville, Alabama. April 20th, Lawrence, Kansas. April 24th, London, England in the UK. And April 27th, Moscow, Russia. A huge thanks to Brandon Johnson from Red Hat for presenting at our local Linux user group here in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Now, the next meeting, we're going to meet, typically we meet the last Friday of every month. However, we don't want to conflict with any Linux fests. So the next meeting will actually be May 3rd. It'll be May 3rd at 6 p.m. Central at Gamble Hall in the University of North Dakota. Speaking of Linux fests. Southeast Linux Fest, one of my favorite fests to attend throughout the entire year. I am being asked to be become more a part of that conference in official capacity as I take over all of the media stuff. And one of the things that we are doing to bolster the community is opening an official Telegram group. That's right. You can join at telegram.southeastlinuxfest.org. Now, I have put my name on the line, people. I have said, if we go on the air and talk about this, people will show their support to Southeast Linux Fest. So if you're coming to Southeast Linux Fest, you absolutely have to be in the group telegram.southeastlinuxfest.org. And if you're not going to attend at Southeast Linux Fest, but would like to become a part of a community that values Linux first, then you'll absolutely still want to be in the group. Again, telegram.southeastlinuxfest.org. I invite you to be in there. Uh, Kapavik in the chat room asks, <clears throat> did you miss here? Are you coming to Huntsville, Alabama? No, I'm not coming to Huntsville, Alabama, but there is a Linux user group in Huntsville, Alabama on April 4th, which you should attend. If you're not currently have plans to, you should make plans to. I also want to give a plug to our video content. 
We're releasing more and more Linux-focused video content. You can find that on our website now. If you go to AskNoahShow.com, there's a videos link that will direct you to the YouTube channel that is specific for video content. Of course, we'll continue to publish the Ask Noah Show on YouTube. I just don't think that the Ask Noah Show was ever built for a compelling video experience, and I want to deliver on people that are looking for a compelling video experience, and so that's why we've launched a separate YouTube channel where all of the interviews that we do at conferences, for example, they are taped as video portions, and we also have some how-to tutorials and things like that coming up. Absolutely have to check it out again, AskNoahShow.com to keep uh, an eye on that. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener. Huge thanks to Ben, who faithfully produces the show every week. Also, JT Pennington, who is helping us with a lot of production behind the scenes. We'll see you all next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Central.